Okay, um, I'd like to introduce um, Emma Reddin to the obesity uh, seminars. Um, Emma, Emma is a, a dance physiologist and uh, she has a uh, degree in dance science from Marvin, and first degree, second degree in sports science uh, at Essex and uh, uh, most recently a PhD in uh, physiology and dance from City University. She's um, uh, Larbin Contemporary Dancers, a uh, 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 dance physiologist, and uh, why should we be interested in dance in the obesity unit? Well, first of all, Larbin does some amazing stuff. Um, not only do they dance and perform, they also engage in research, uh, dancers in training, um, creating you know, a scientific uh, approach um, to dance. Uh, they identify exceptionally talented young dancers. Uh, they promote physical activity to young people through dance, so there's an outreach program. And I guess this is part of what we're interested in. We're also interested in how um, the language of the body um, um, travels between scientific and lay understandings. And um, through dance training, we're hoping to start an ethnography of, uh, of dance as... Uh, dancers learn anatomy and physiology and then move through the language of dance and how they negotiate that space that actually everybody negotiates. That is, there's a scientific understanding of the body, this is what's used in public health, uh, promotion, yet we all have our everyday understandings of our body and they seem to be two very different discourses and yet this is probably a key to moving between, between, between the two, two disciplines. And the wonderful thing about anthropology is that from understanding local negotiations in you know, appropriate, appropriate groups of people, we can address much larger questions. So, Emma, over to you. Thank you, Stanley. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Um, I'll just give you an overview, really, of what I'd like to do today. And then I thought we'd go straight into seeing some dance um, and not saying too much about what that is. But um, that's what I'll start with. And then I'll talk a bit about the developments of dance science um, as a new area of research and study and what dance science is uh, for us anyway at Largan, which, as Stanley says, is a conservatoire for contemporary dance artist training. But there's a, a, quite a substantial research, growing research uh, department within Largan. So we have 300 potential sort of research subjects to work with um, on our doorstep, so to speak. Then I'll talk um, a little bit more specifically, but I'm going to keep it quite broad, um, about the physiology of the dancer and of dancing. So the physiological determinants of dance performance and also the um, physiological characteristics of dancers as measured um, by various um, people in the field just in the last 10 years really. There's not very much we know about dance and dancers to be honest from a sort of scientific point of view. Um, and then I'll end up by talking about what's unique about dancers or what seems to have been developed in dance that others can observe and learn from. Because I think although we've got a lot to learn from uh, sports science and medicine, there's also um, something that I think we are quite good at through training and education. Um, and, um, and others could perhaps um, learn from 
share ideas about. So, without further ado, it's quite unusual to introduce my dance because normally I just come on stage and nobody speaks. It's a bit weird to sort of shift into performance mode. But anyway, I'll try and do that. Um, the piece is called Escape. It's just a tiny excerpt, a couple of minutes, um, and it was choreographed by Tony Thatcher, who is head of choreography at Marvin. But we work in a fairly collaborative way. Um, and it might be worth just mentioning that this piece was made in a very different context, a different environment, um, not in a studio, and it hasn't been performed in a proscenium arch theatre before. It's performing various site-specific places, but fundamentally it was made in a very particular space. And at the end of the lecture today, <coughs> excuse me, I'll share with you where it was made. But let's see if you can see anything, any reference to uh, <coughs> that environment or can guess where it was made. Okay, that's all I'm going to say. I'm going to try and get the music to work. Okay, so this is Larbon, which is the college in South East London. Thank you, Stanley. And we're in a, a, an award-winning building. It's a Sterling, Sterling Prize award-winning building. It's designed by Herzog Jamal. Swiss architects who designed Tate Modern and the Beijing Olympic Stadium, 2008 Stadium, they won the Pritzker Prize for Architecture. And this building was the 2003 Building of the Year. And what's interesting about this building is it's a purpose-built centre for contemporary dance. So we have 13 dance studios, we have a dance science laboratory, Pilates studio, health clinic, lecture theatre, 306 theatre, purpose-built for dance, and it means, and also we're a certain size, we're, we're a big enough college to have specialist uh, expert teachers and, and researchers, a specialist health centre, a specialist research um, department. Um, but we're not uh, a big university, we're almost like a department in a university. We have over 350 students, um, all training to be performers and choreographers on the BA, first degree, uh, undergrad degree programme. So they, they're getting their degree, but fundamentally they have a, a, a vocational training, 35 hours at least a week. Um, and we've got premium funding from the government to train them to a high level. We also have master's programmes and a PhD um, programme as well. And I lead the master's degree in dance science. We've got four MA programmes, Master of Arts, in areas such as choreography and performance, um, dance theatre, body and performance. And I did the MS in Dance Science, which is the first ever master's degree in dance science. There are now other universities who are doing MSCs in dance science, headed up by my graduates. <laughs> so that's interesting how things evolve. But it's a fairly new and exciting area of research and study. And I'd say that Love is one of the leaders in this field. Not that that's quite not that that's that difficult because it's a fairly new area. Lots of unanswered questions and lots of publishable research. So dance science um, for us. Well, we refer to the International Association for Dance, Medicine and Science, which is 20 years running now. Their mission is uh, to enhance the health, well-being, training and performance of dancers by cultivating educational, medical and scientific excellence. And that's what we try and do. And we've got uh, good links with I. Adams. I'm the Vice President of the Association and uh, it's been growing ever since it started 20 years ago. But, um, so that's what we do at Larbon. We try and, from an interdisciplinary perspective, look at physiological, psychological, biomechanical aspects of dancers. 
um, to help them enhance their training, optimize their performance potential, so to be better, healthier dancers. Um, and what we do is we screen all our dancers at the beginning of their training and at the end of their training with us, which is about giving them empowerment, responsibility for their own development by giving them information about themselves so that they can walk towards their own development. But it's also about us being able to review what we're doing with them. So what is the impact of training in a vocational institution day in, day out, looking at yourself in the mirror with hardly any clothes on? What, what's the impact on self-esteem, self-confidence, um, body anxiety? What's, what's the impact of training, high levels of, of training on areas of health, like menstrual health, um, for example? Hi, Catherine. And, um, and what's the impact um, of our work, of our training on areas of fitness, so are dancers getting fitter, healthier, are they better at doing what they do? So the end of our screening program, or profiling programming, is to look at ways of enhancing their training, give them information about themselves, and also for us to assess what we're doing with them. And no other institution is doing that kind of work, and I think the thing is, dance training is based on tradition and anecdotal experience. Nobody really knows how to train a dancer. So we, we do what we think is right based on intuition and experience, and there's something to be said for that, of course. But we're just trying to scientifically measure what we're doing with it, just so that we could perhaps develop even more effective training programs and perhaps develop um, more conducive, conducive learning environments uh, that, are, that are much more positive and forward thinking and healthier as well. So, the other strand of our work in dance science, though, is to look at scientifically measuring the impact that dance can have on areas of health and well-being among other populations. So that's not looking at elite dancers and looking at what they can achieve and pushing their capabilities. It's, it's actually just gathering evidence um, with regards to what dance can do. And we sort of know what dance can do because of all the many community projects that go on in the country and in schools. So we know that dance is good for you, but in what way is it good for you? So we've done some studies that have shown that dance um, has a positive impact on areas of um, cardiovascular health, for example. Um, so aerobic fitness is improved, um, and, we, and, and strength, body strength, that kind of thing. But we're interested in the other benefits in addition to those that any sport really can, can give, because we're not trying to compete with sport. But we are saying that dance is perhaps an alternative to sport, particularly for those teenage girls in schools that don't perhaps like sport. So, um, so it's a nice alternative in terms of the physical um, impact that dance can have. But psychologically, we are looking also at areas um, that are associated with the, um, the self-determination theories of the three basic needs. We're measuring um, what dance can do to a sense of, for a sense of relatedness, competence, and autonomy. So you may know about that much more than I do. I'm not a psychologist, but our psychologists are working on that. So, so what to what extent can these young boys and girls feel a greater sense of perceived competence, relatedness, and autonomy, um, and enjoy and enjoy um, what they're doing? It's enjoyment, one of the biggest predictors of, of um, adherence and compliance to the program. Um, so that's the other area, and then and then another big research project that we're doing um, is looking at, in a sense, bridging the community work, the general population and then the elites by looking at talent development and talent identification. So to get on a gifted and talented dance program, uh, usually you're, you're auditioned, so we're looking at sort of 10 to 18 year olds really, they're auditioned and um, in a sense they are 
um, viewed in a way that's, um, that's, how can I describe? So, so these students are coming in with previous experience, and if they've had exposure to previous, previous experience because of their economic backgrounds or, or whatever, then they, they, they are able to pick up exercises that are taught in an audition. But of course, the young lads from Deptford, where London is located, a fairly urban and deprived area, haven't had um, exposure to dance. They come in at an audition, and the way in which the audition is structured doesn't allow them to excel and show themselves to their best. So we're reviewing audition criteria and trying to look at what, um, what constitutes talent, and because talent is time-specific, and um, we know that talent is transient. So, so it's just that we're, what we're doing is having a look at this group that are um, uh, taken onto these talented schemes around the country. It's a nationwide study. We're working with 400 young people. And we're um, looking at their psychological characteristics, physiological and biomechanical, and growth in particular to see whether there is any relationship to injury, to drop out, to compliance, and to success. Uh, the other thing we're doing is capturing teachers' perceptions of talent and asking teachers to um, rate these young people and then measuring, uh, correlating those um, values against the variables that we're measuring in that scheme. So that's quite an exciting scheme, so I hope it's going to radically review the way in which we can measure talent, raw, innate talent, if there is such a thing. Um, but let's look then really at the, um, the other end, the professional dancers, and here's a ballet dancer. And of course, there are many different dance styles, and in terms of population characteristics, certain dance styles have a much more homogeneous set of characteristics than others. So in ballet, for example, if we um, look at the research that's measured areas such as body composition, body mass, uh, index, for example, they're a much more homogeneous group. Um, flexibility, range of motion at the joints, much more homogeneous group than contemporary dance, uh, which is the dance form that I um, engage in, or hip hop. Um, Indian dance is, is much more homogeneous even than contemporary. So, um, so it depends on the dance style. We can't generalize um, in the way we have been, because a lot of research talks about dance, but actually they're talking about ballet dance. Uh, however, Craig Sharp, exercise physiologist, 1990, said that dancers are in fact among the supreme all-round athletes in our society, and as such are well worth looking at physiologically. So it's only in the 1990s that we started to look at dancers in this way. Um, that, uh, on the other hand, independent artist Jill Clark in 2007 said they are not machines, not athletes, although extraordinary virtuosity might be one of their means of expression. They are imaginative artists. What we see in performance is not their physical bones, but their selves, their imaginations and intentions and wills and desires and disciplined motion. And perhaps unlike sport, the problem we've got in dance, the challenge we've got, is to work with artists and scientists to bring those two groups of people together. Um, and for me, there, there's no problem with that at all. If, if you want to be a dance artist, you have to, you have to be able to comprehend the science and the art of dance. But for many dance artists, there's a, a, a reluctance to accept scientific research um, it, because of some fear that it's going to somehow cloud or dilute the art form. So there's been a lot of sort of challenge in previous years, even though in sports science, of course, it's, it's much more straightforward, and of course the goals are much more measurable, so we can show that science works in a way we can't show it works in dance. 
However, 80% um, of dancers are injured in any one year. And that's applying the, injury of the, the definition of injury that is applied to certain other studies that have looked at football, squash and rugby. Compared with football, squash and rugby, using that same definition, dancers are more likely to be injured. And you know, rugby, contact sport, are killing each other. Still not as many injuries. So there, there, there's a lot of work to be done. And one of the biggest, uh, well, the biggest perceived cause of injury, um, so this was a survey done in 1992 and 2002, um, it was published in 2005, but it was a 10 year um, time span, no difference statistically in the injury rates, the injury prevalence among dancers. So although we've been developing all this scientific research, the word's not quite getting out there just yet, but you know, things are slow to evolve. Nevertheless, dancers, um, biggest perceived cause is, uh, is, is fatigue, fatigue. So if the biggest perceived cause of injury is fatigue, then that means most injuries are preventable. And one of the areas that we've been looking at in dance is fitness, and the idea that dancers aren't as fit as they should be. And of course, when we talk about fitness, um, you mentioned this kind of jigsaw of components of physical fitness, and I'm sure you've all got various different kinds, because uh, this is just Kudadakis and Sharp in 1999, uh, there might be other components that you think should be on there, but if we look at the components of physical fitness, then we would say that dancers probably excel in the areas of flexibility, balance, skill, agility, coordination, and indeed dancers' training is very much focused on skill. It's a highly skill-based activity, and on day one, dancers are learning skill. It's a technique class, unlike in rugby, where you know it's about getting fit, laying the foundations, the physiological, more functional foundations, before then um, dealing with skill, ball techniques, um, tactics, and then eventually playing a game. Um, in dance, it's straight into skill because there hasn't been the same regard for the, for the, for example, the cardiovascular system. The idea of developing a good endurance and stamina. Um, so if we were to get dancers fitter, perhaps fatigue, the onset of fatigue would be delayed and perhaps injuries would go down. So we're not saying that fitter dancers are necessarily better dancers because ultimately the skill is the most important thing and highly skilled dancers become efficient. So perhaps they're less reliant then on stamina and a good um, cardiovascular system if they're efficient. Um, However, there's something to be said for looking at that. So that's what my research um, did. We focused on the cardiovascular system. And um, just to give you an idea of some of the studies that we looked at, um, we looked at oxygen uptake during a modern dance class, so if you can read that, rehearsal and performance. So we looked at whether the oxygen demands in class, in training, in a typical day's training, match those of performance. So one so of the physiological demands of performance when dancers are on stage versus training. And, and ideally you want the, there to be a, a, a match at least at some point. So we know that athletes train at altitude in order to be able to compete at altitude. We know that they wear the kit that they're supposed to wear at competition and the 100 metre runner will do more than 100 metres to prepare for the 100 metre race. Um, and we developed dance-specific ways of measuring physiological capabilities because, of course, dancers aren't used to running on the treadmill, it's not familiar to them, they use different muscle groups. So we developed um, multi-stage fitness tests using dance movements and validated those as a way of, um, of determining how fit dancers are and how fit they get across time. 
and we developed a high intensity more anaerobic test as well. It was a sort of short, sort of short burst, one minute eyeballs out, dance test, two minute rest, one minute dance, and two minutes rest, which represents replicates the kind of work to us ratio seen in dance uh, performance. And the other thing I should say is in class, in training, dancers' exercises are no more than one minute long. So you have sort of three sets of eight, plie exercise, upper body exercise, and a little stop. And in fact, 60% of any 90-minute class is rest because you're listening to the teacher giving you lots of, sort of instructions and feedback. So 40% um, is moving, and out of that 40%, one uh, exercise is on no longer than one minute. However, when you get on stage, the, the, the duration which you're working at a particular intensity is a lot longer. So we're not matching, the, the energy demands are not being matched in training. So we, we've got a, a portable gas analyzer, a Metamax, which you may have seen before, because we wanted to make sure we were just measuring heart rate, because of course that could be affected by performance anxiety. So um, measuring oxygen uptake and kilocalorie expenditure and that kind of thing. Um, to look at whether there is a discrepancy between training and performance. And indeed we found in contemporary dance that there is a big difference between the intensity at which training is carried out at versus the intensity at which performance is carried out at. And I thought I'd just show you um, a clip because the, the little dance I just did there wasn't particularly high in intensity, right? But the, the, it depends on the, on the piece. And I'll show you, um, if I can, this piece, which is a fairly old piece now in the 80s. It's made by Lloyd Newsom company deviate and it's a piece called Dead Dreams of Minecraft Men. There's one guy who doesn't do much moving, but the others are quite physical. I'm afraid I don't have the sound on here, but I'll show you the, the movement. What's this dance about? Um, it addresses issues of um, sexuality. I mean, I don't know. I, know, I was going to say it's sort of gay. <laughs> yeah, no, no, deviate, no, I mean, a lot of his work is, uh, yeah. I it's mean, about coming out, isn't it? It's about the struggles of yeah, basically, a lot of his, all of his work is probably around that proposition of homosexuality. But yeah, it's pretty exhausting to watch. It's even more exhausting when you've got the sound, but, um, but it's, it's full on, isn't it? And um, very physical. Um, and what Lloyd Newsom does, the choreographer, unlike most other choreographers, is he says to his dancers, I'm about to make a new piece, I'm going to pay you for six months. The first two months, and I want to see you. I want you to go to the gym, I want you to swim, I want you to do yoga, I want you to get physically fit. There's going to be a lot of upper body work, and then come back, and then we overlay the skill and the choreography, and we start working. No other group that does that that I know of. You go straight in and you start making the work. You start by trying to lift somebody when you've done no upper body progressive exercises to prepare you for that. So it's quite interesting. Um, to look at the, the ways in which dancers are prepared. Um, I'll just say something about body composition. I mentioned that before, because of course it's an interesting one in dance, because um, most research shows that um, dancers' body composition, um, body fat is lower than the general population, and their, their body mass index is also lower. Um, it, their body fat's not as low as people might think, um, not compared with many sort of endurance athletes, because I, I think Dancers don't address the, the power to weight issue as a sort of something that's going to really enhance their performance. The leaner they are, they're going to be able to jump higher and, um, and catch um, people in the They don't see it like that. It's more of an aesthetic thing for dancers because of the requirements to be 
fairly thin-looking, particularly in ballet. So in contemporary, it's different. We can actually be being more muscular and athletic-looking, but um, but for ballet in particular. So the eating habits are quite poor. Eating disorders are are high compared to the general population. Uh, menstrual abnormalities are it depends on the research study, but they, that that number ranges from three to seventy percent of female female population in a, in a dance company suffering from menstrual abnormalities. So compared to the two to five percent of the general population, there's quite a different effect for the females. And our talent development study looking at 10 to 18 year olds has found eating disorders in both boys and girls equally, equal prevalence. So that's quite interesting as well. Um, and yeah, it's a complex issue and one that we can't ignore. But it's not all doom and gloom because, of course, let's look at the amazing feats that dancers can achieve. So dance is a highly skill-based activity. <laughs> dancers can reach huge extremes in terms of range of motion, joint range of motion. Uh, big demands are placed on the dancers and they tend to meet them because of all the skill and the efficiency and their balance ability as well. So dancers are able to balance on demi point, which is just on the half point there, and indeed for ballet, up on the point. Very small um, base um, of support there, and they can then also lift their leg and uh, hold it in position. Um, and so we, we do a lot of work with dancers for their balance and the idea of developing their proprioception. So um, you've probably heard of proprioception. Often we talk about kinesthesia, joint motion sense, and Proprioception being joint position sense. Um, and just because it's quite nice to all stand up, let's just stand up and remind ourselves of what proprioception is for the audience participation. So if you just place one arm in the air and then take it out to a sort of V shape without knocking anybody in the head. Okay, so without looking at where that arm is, without relying on your visual feedback, place the other arm in the same position on the other side, so it's all symmetrical. And how do you know that you've achieved that because of your proprioception? And then if we take our arm behind our back and uh, just take your index finger and have that available, and then place your other hand behind your back with the index finger and just tap, tap the, the end of the fingers, so just touch the fingers a bit. How do you know where that finger is without looking? because of us, the senses in our bodies that allow us to understand joint position and joint motion. So we can sit down again now. And um, most people think that dancers have a heightened proprioception because of what they do. Um, however, da dancers tend to use mirrors pretty much all day. So unlike the general population, doesn't have a mirror with them everywhere they walk, dancers heavily rely on visual feedback to um, judge whether the movements that they are doing are accurate or not. And um, at Larbon, we've intentionally taken away mirrors from half of the studios. So particularly for contemporary dance that involves going upside down a lot, using the, um, the weight of the head to move, if you've got a mirror in front of you, we find that our dancers tend to keep their focus looking at themselves and then they try and move their spine and they can't actually let their heads go with their spine as well. So it's a sort of, we actually think we can achieve a lot more in contemporary by doing that. But of course there are lots of other reasons. It means that we can encourage dancers to self-reference more um, from within, 
where their body is in space and judge how accurate their movements are from sensing rather than looking. Um, and then, of course, the whole issue of body image. Um, I'd like to think that rather than a healthy attitude towards bodies and body shape, and um, I think it, it must have an impact not having those mirrors that, to look at all day, every day. We also have a, a flexible kind of um, rule about clothing, particularly if we're doing contemporary dance that involves kind of letting go and releasing the musculature in the, in the body parts, then to have tight fitting types and leotard. I don't know if this is true, but I've measured it, seems to pull in the musculature of the body more than if we had floaty, floppy clothes. It seems to allow us to release more, but that's completely anecdotal. Um, okay, so my questions really, just to end on really, uh, related to the mirrors and proprioception and self-referencing and getting dancers to feel better about themselves and more in their bodies is should dancers be more or less aware of what they look like? So of course we're going on stage and the minute you walk on stage we are aware of what we look like. That has to be a consideration. But if we work more from a, through somatic principles, um, so in other words, working from within and judging from within rather than using visual feedback or trying to please the teacher, so being intrinsically motivated in self-referencing, maybe we can look different or we can certainly feel better about ourselves. Would we dance differently if we relied less on visual feedback? And then just to end, and I'll show you now the film of uh, where the location where we made the little piece I showed you at the beginning. Um, to what extent can the spectator appreciate the dancer's accumulative sensory experiences from elsewhere? So in other words, if we dance a certain dance piece in another location with perhaps a different um, set of surfaces that we're in contact with and then through our memory and sensory perception we have a different experience, can we then draw from that experience when we perform in other locations? Um, and that's just a question out there that Tony Thatcher and myself and other many people are considering. Um, there's a bit of work going on at the University of Manchester uh, an AHRC funded project called Watching Dance, which is about kinesthetic empathy and the spectator response. You may have heard about that, and the mirror neuron work going on, and that's um, in a sense related to what I'm talking about. So I'm just going to end by um, perhaps just lastly to say that we've recently merged with Trinity College of Music and um, trying to develop a lot of this work for musicians because musicians also have issues of health that we need to look at. And um, although there's been a lot of work in music areas of music psychology and audience response work in music and uh, group performance anxiety, there's been less work on the physical development of musicians, the um, bodily awareness of musicians as they walk on stage, and um, injury as well. So lots of musicians don't declare their injuries. At least in dancing, now it feels like it's okay to have an injury. But um, musicians, there seems to be a long way to go for, yeah, for them. So we're excited about working with Trinity College of Music. Okay, so I'm just going to end now on. I hope this works. <laughs>